there's an insta-perfect perception of remote schooling and revision, where parents casually teaching their children quadratic equations while they're developing cold fusion on the side. In this world, parent and child move in some magical symbiotic harmony, and the kids probably even volunteer to take the bins out. Yes, right. The very real reality is that parenting and schooling in lockdown is tricky. It can feel like there's little or no respite. But although friction is to be expected, is there something in how we deal with it that will unlock a more positive outcome? Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021, or at least what was intended to be their 2021 exams. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. They could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how to get the best out of revising for one specific subject. Now, these are normal teams, so you can be sure that we'll be covering the topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at how parenting might be getting in the way of getting the most out of our children. And I'm delighted to be joined by Aisha Murray. Aisha is a professional coach who has built her career by working with parents to help them find balance. She is also the host of the popular Parent Equation podcast. Aisha, thank you for joining me. This week is very much like previous weeks for our teens, and that Groundhog Day effect is really impacting how they feel. Motivation has suffered with the lack of an exam goal, and the isolation is really starting to take its toll too. But what most are struggling with is the relentless drive forward, regardless of how they feel. For Joe, this dip in drive has caused him to fall behind in some of his lessons. And that's now snowballing because he still has new content to learn, but unfortunately his state of mind isn't improving. Not least of all, he's also mindful that this will all have an impact on his teacher-assessed grades. So, Joe's mum has taken his PS4 away. I guess both as a deterrent to not fall behind, but also as a consequence. Joe isn't happy about it. I've been falling a little bit behind because I feel like there's a lot of work, but I'm trying to catch up now. I think I've been sort of like not really bothered to do it, in all honesty, because I've just found there's no motivation to get up early and do work and just get into the group of things. I can't go on the PlayStation at the moment because my mum's confiscated it off me because I fell behind. And so she wants me to do all of the work which I've fallen behind on to, uh, and then I'll get it back. But many of us would have done exactly the same, and I certainly did with Jake. Aisha. Often, these responses can be based on old parenting views of cause and effect, and although it's fairly ingrained parenting responses for most of us, can it be counterproductive? That's a very big question, but a very good question. And I think the main thing, the perspective I want to bring to this is from obviously from a coaching perspective, as I work with adults and working parents, but coaching techniques can absolutely be applied to your children. And I need to put some context around that because... When I coach clients, those clients are choosing to come to me. So they have decided they want coaching and they've made that conscious decision and they've sought me out. 
your child hasn't asked to have coaching from you. <laughs> so there has to be a context around it and a different way of approaching it. But if I just talk maybe about a sort of a few of the coaching tools and techniques that I use, it can definitely be applied to children. The first one would be reflection and allowing them to have time to reflect. So what's really important in coaching, and for all of us actually as human beings, is allowing time to reflect, to think, to process, to identify how you're feeling at specific moments in time, to identify what's triggering certain feelings. So the first thing we can do as parents is give our children the space to do that. And I think especially when you're talking about teenagers, I haven't got teenagers, mine are a bit younger, but with teenagers, they need that space even more. There is so much going on mentally, physically for them, hormonally, that allowing them time, quiet time to sit and reflect is vital for them to process what's going on day in, day out, especially during a pandemic, especially during all of the, the storm around their exams, etc. at the moment. And alongside that, I think children need something tangible to hold on to. So things like journaling, which I always advocate for adults, can be really, really important alongside that reflection. So you sit there, you have some quiet time, you reflect on your day, you reflect on the challenges, you reflect on what's gone well, what hasn't gone well. And alongside that, you encourage your child to write, just get everything out on paper. And it's amazing how just a few minutes of writing can stimulate a stream of consciousness. It's a very cathartic process. So that would be my first sort of tool to use from a coaching context that can definitely be applied to children. The second one, I think, is about respect and empathy. And again, this is all just human, being kind to other humans, but it applies to your children as well. And I think we, we sometimes forget that children are human beings with feelings, with a right to having those feelings, with a right to having their own thoughts and making their own decisions. So allowing your child the respect, allowing them time to talk to you, to be honest, to be open. And the third one is actively listening to them. So you're given the time and the space to talk and to reflect. But if you don't actively listen to them, then they're not going to get as much out of it as they could. And when I say actively listen, that means no distractions, which I know in this day and age is very difficult, especially working from home as adults. Um, I'm self-employed, so I'm always on my phone, which is a terrible habit, but there we are. Actively listening means putting all that away for whatever time works for you, five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour. No distractions. Don't interrupt their stream of thought. Just let them speak. Let them speak. And then ask them some open questions to keep them going. So tell me more about that or why are you thinking that? And in coaching, we call those open questions because it allows someone just to keep on going with those thoughts and that thought process. So those are my sort of three just off the top of my head intro points of how to get the most out of your child and allow them the space to really think. Because it can be difficult, can't it? When it's in the moment, like with Joe's mum, that actually something's not gone according to plan and Joe has fallen behind. And obviously it's not right. And also you don't want to encourage that. So how do you pick up on that as a point of reflection to encourage Joe to think about it? So I think alongside the time and the journaling and the reflection, having some structure in place for Joe to, again, something tangible to hang on to helps. So if he is feeling unmotivated, this is the whole premise of this conversation for the moment, he's feeling unmotivated and therefore that has resulted in his mum taking away his prized PS4. So the root of the issue is, why is Joe feeling unmotivated? What is it that's brought him to this point? And how can we reignite his motivations, reignite his passions, so that in the future, we're not going to get in the situation again, and his mum won't need to take anything away from him. And I think, again, motivation comes, and I think you've touched on this before, at the moment, these children haven't got an end goal in sight. None of us have at the moment. It all feels like this is going on for a very long time. We're all in lockdown for a very long time. Their exam 
processes a bit up in the air. So their end goal is much more unclear than it would have been in a normal academic situation. So how can we reinstate those goals for those kids? And those goals can be tiny. They can be small little chunks, just small wins, small moments to, to celebrate. But we need, in this case, Joe to be involved in that conversation about what his goals are and what his motivations are and what his passions are. Because if we put that upon him or upon any of our children, they're not brought into that conversation. So they're not going to see it through, are they? So I think the first thing is to work with Joe and other teenagers in his situation and say, okay, let's break this down. What does motivate you? And it might not be about work or about school or about anything. It's a complete open book. So what really gets you going in the morning? What, you know, what makes you tick? What, what are your values in life? What do you want to be? What do you stand for? All of these sort of things, which we happily ask in a leadership situation in a workplace. But we can put that on our children as well and ask them those same questions. And again, just let them think about, actually, this is what I would love to achieve and love to be. And just get that passion going initially, get that passion reignited. And then use some simple tools. I think structure is important, again, when it comes to motivating and children and coaching, because we need something to go through, a sort of tool and a plan to go through. So we can look at what motivates him. We can then, once we have those motivations, say, okay, so what kind of time frame are we thinking about this particular end goal? And it could be tiny. It could be tomorrow I'm going to achieve this. It could be next week. It could be next year. It doesn't really matter as long as there are some goals and some timeframes alongside them. And then we can help them break it down into sort of manageable steps to achieve those goals. And again, I really want to stress it shouldn't all be about the work and all be about the revision and all be about the academic side because their motivations and passions might lie, should probably lie outside of that, I'm sure. But if we don't allow them to be who they are, it's going to be very hard to get them to be motivated about the one particular academic side of it. So it's really about keeping everything in that conversation, I think. And then once we have these little chunks that they can work through and they can start to see their small achievements on a sort of longer journey, again, asking them to reflect back on that. So how did that make you feel when you achieved that point that you said yesterday? And hopefully it made them feel good. It made them feel excited. So they want to move on to the next one, the next one, the next one. And you start small and it all builds up and they can start seeing the benefit of feeling re-energized, of being passionate about something. And it starts to have a snowball effect where these little wins build up, build up, and they start to take it upon themselves to reflect more and to make these changes and make these things happen. Absolutely love that definition of a goal as being, certainly for these teens and these children, as being just something small that they can celebrate. And I think we lose sight of that in talking about goals, don't we, that we think about I want to be a lion tamer or I want to be an accountant or whatever else it might be that you want. And that's, that becomes the goal. Whereas actually, as you say, catching up can be a goal. And actually, if you can start to do that, you feel justified about being sort of pleased with yourself. And that in itself becomes a motivating force. I want to feel like that again. Exactly. It's that repeating that feeling and that repetition as in learning any new skill, repetition is key. You keep practicing, keep practicing, practicing. It comes more naturally and it becomes part of your daily life. I think that's the same with these small, small goals, chunk it up. And it's again, a common coaching technique is to chunk things up and make things bite-sized and manageable. So you can tick things off your list and feel like you're making progress. If your goal is too intangible and too sort of, again, far off and unachievable, like being a lion tamer, for example, you're never going to get there. You're never going to feel like you've made any progress day to day. But small goals, achievable goals on a daily basis almost are the way to do that, I think. I definitely recognize that from Jake. But also I'm realistic in that having a conversation with a teen about purpose and vision and goals, no matter how small they might be, can be like pushing water up a hill. It's, it's not something I'd always advocate. And you can get them in the right frame of mind and the right moment to have those conversations. But there are very few teens who would actively engage with their parents, certainly, 
on that kind of a conversation. And there are also then times when things will go off of track. And in some cases you go, oh, I wish we hadn't found ourselves in this situation. How does it make you feel? What should you or we do about resolving this? But then there are also some instances, aren't there, where actually the consequences feel like they might be spiralling and that the parent needs to step in and do more. I'm sort of going to predict the answer, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Is there a magic formula? (laughs) Is there a way in which you can say, ah, okay, this is an X, Y, Z category fallout. I'll step in. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a magic formula? If there was, I think I would be a millionaire. Someone would be a millionaire. But let me just answer your first point first. I think that's about pushing water up a hill and how you get to a point where you can have those conversations. I think that's obviously the first hurdle is having a conversation in the first place. And I was just talking to someone today, actually, about a shared passion, which a lot of coaches now use. And that's the walk and talk coaching technique, because you can definitely get more out of somebody when you're out in the open, out in nature, when you are walking shoulder to shoulder with somebody when there is limited eye contact, so you're not staring at somebody across a breakfast table or across a dining table. And also, interestingly, especially for teenagers, when they're out of their house, so when they're, especially in lockdown, when they're out of their house, away from the restrictions, away from the same bedroom, the same kitchen, away from the piles of schoolwork, the piles of laundry, all these things that clutter our minds anyway, when you take someone out of that situation into nature and you walk alongside them. It's amazing how that stimulates thought and stimulates conversation and freedom of conversation. And you may walk for half an hour and the first five, 10 minutes might be silent. And as a parent, you might be thinking, okay, not getting very far here. They're just silent. And is it going to be one of those days where they're just going to, you know, cold shoulder me, we're not going to get anywhere. But actually that silence is the vital start to that conversation. Because in that silence, they are reflecting and they are processing and they are out of their house. And suddenly all these things are going on in their minds. So they need to have that initial period of quiet. With you by their side, they're still supported. You're still there and present. But they are processing everything that's going on for them. And as they process, things will then start to come out. And you'll get a bit here and a bit there. And eventually, almost guarantee that half an hour later, you'll be in full flow conversation still walking. And all of these things you didn't realize they were thinking or feeling or had experienced will be coming out much more naturally than if you try and do it, as I said, in a confined, normal space of the kitchen or their bedroom or somewhere where there are all these things that are already cluttering their mind. The answer to your first question is find the right time and space to have the conversation. Don't just try and force it into your day when you've got half an hour or an hour to spare really carve out the time and think about where you can have that conversation, where you can go that's neutral, that's interesting, that's a bit more freeing for both of you, actually. That's very productive anyway. So the magic formula, which doesn't exist, find that space and that time, ideally be outside to have the conversations and to start those conversations. Don't put too much expectation on yourself or on them to have a magic formula within a half an hour conversation. Just build on those conversations every day, every day, and see where they go and see where they meander. And again, in those conversations, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, allow them the time and space, allow them the respect, be non-judgmental, be unbiased, all of these sort of great qualities that we should have when we have supportive conversations. Allow all that to happen and see where the conversation goes. Just do that first, because I think if you can get to a point where those conversations are allowing them to talk to you properly and to get your support, then you might not end up in a situation where it's spiraling in the first place. 
So maybe that is the magic formula is communication, shoulder to shoulder, somewhere that's not home and allowing them to just get everything off their chest. Maybe it's a magic formula. Maybe I'll have to go and trademark that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember seeing it in Harry Potter, but it's one of those things that sounds so simplistic, but actually immediately you can see how that can benefit if you take the pressure off and environment and context add to those pressures. I wonder when you're going for this walk and talk, is there a structure or are there any tips that you'd have in mind that would help you to go about having a more productive conversation with your team? There is potentially a couple of coaching techniques and tools to structure the conversation you have with kids. One is called the ABCDE tool. So A is what they call the activating event. So what is the event that's happening? What's the situation that you are in or your child is in that is causing an issue, a challenge, an upset, whatever it is? B is the beliefs. So what does your child believe is happening in that situation? Inevitably, there'll be negative self-limiting beliefs. So I can't do that because I am too tall, too short, too fat, too thin to be able to do that. All these beliefs that we all have going around our heads. So the B is identify those. Again, get them on paper, accept that they're there, acknowledge them. C is about consequences. So if you have all those negative beliefs, what will be the consequence of the situation? It's not going to end well. If we're thinking negatively, the consequences will inevitably also be negative and not where we want them to go. D is dispute. So that's about challenging. So how can we then start challenging these beliefs? So actually, if you were tall enough, what could you achieve? If you were good enough, what could you achieve? And creating a scenario of if, if it's an ideal situation, imagine what you could achieve, imagine how you would feel. And then E is exchange. So let's exchange all those negative beliefs, all those insecurities that you can't do, whatever it is you can't do. And let's exchange out for some new positive and balanced beliefs. So yes, I can because of this. The reason I can do this is because I'm good at that. And really start to build out a new belief system and rid yourself of all the limiting beliefs that inevitably just don't get you anywhere and don't move you forward. So that's just quite a simple little A, B, C, D, E just again, help your child through, maybe start a conversation with them and get them thinking more positively when they're starting to feel down about a certain situation. So is that the kind of thing that you would use on one of these walk and talks as a way of maybe encouraging a direction in that conversation? I think so. And I think, again, you don't have to go through it in such a structured way. You wouldn't necessarily say, right, A, <laughs> let's talk about your activating event. <laughs> so it's not about using it word for word, but it's about understanding the journey that conversation can go on and where you can take that conversation. So absolutely, you can use that anywhere, whether it's a walk and talk, or just a chat at home, whenever you want to use it. But it's just a, a structure that can take you through that conversation and get them to start acknowledging why they can't do something, why they think they can't do something and exchanging that and change that into a much more positive outcome. So yes, use it as a structure, but don't necessarily use it word for word. It's a really interesting thing about that side-by-side talk that you explained there. It reminded me of something that Dominique Thompson was talking about in our first episode, actually, of doing that non-contact chat. And I think there's something in that, isn't there? That actually not looking into the other person's eye, parent to child in this case, is less confrontational and it's out of context and it's all of those kinds of things that should just let that conversation flow and then hopefully sort of reveal the burning issues. Yeah, exactly. And actually, there's another anecdote which has been confirmed by a few people. The same principle, but in a car. So if you go for a drive with somebody, your teenager, your whoever you want to talk to, again, there's no eye contact because someone's driving. And my good friend and fellow coach, who's a very experienced coach called Annie Townend, 
who's also a massive champion of the walk and talk, her view potentially is that driving is moving forward. So not only are you side by side without the eye contact, but also the motion of going forward, maybe psychologically makes you feel like you're going somewhere and you're actually progressing in a conversation. I think it's very interesting psychological thought. I'm not a psychologist, but I'm sure someone's got something about that, but it seems to make sense to me. But that side by side, I think is really, really important. And it's not just side by side, it's getting outside. It's just actually getting you out of anywhere to have some clarity of thought is really important. I'm not sure how much I'd subscribe to the going forward, representing moving forward, but definitely can see, as you say, it's sort of being in a place that's neutral as well, I guess, so that you can have that chat. And I think that's what we're finding more, isn't it? That as parents, it's becoming difficult to gauge as our children are becoming less childlike and desperate to make their own decisions and make their own mistakes and to do these kinds of things. But as parents, we're still very protective and we still come back to this instinct of parent lead, child follow. I, I know what's best for you. Let me tell you. And so is this one of those ways in which you can help find that balance, I would see? Of course, parents have to lead in the sense that parents are role models for their children. So our job as hopefully good parents is to not only provide them with their sort of basic hygiene needs of at the moment, food, 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 warmth, love, support, all those things. But our role also is to be a good role model for our children. So whatever we do, whatever our children see is what they will grow up to believe is true and they will perpetuate in their lives. A good example of that is, and again, it helps actually lockdown. This is a potentially good thing. Our children are seeing us and seeing our daily habits all the time. We cannot escape from this happening. We can't hide ourselves away and do things sort of in secret. They're seeing everything, warts and all. And this morning, my husband or this afternoon was doing his daily weights gym session downstairs in the kitchen because the gyms are all closed, obviously. And my six-year-old was there doing her homeschooling in the kitchen, watching daddy do his exercises. And her first reaction was to go over, and it's not the first time it's happened, and say, what are you doing, daddy? So daddy said, right, this is what I'm doing. And these are the weights. So she picked up a small little weight. And next thing I knew, she was following him around the kitchen, copying him. So A, she's getting her exercise in for the day, which is marvellous because that saves me and Joe Wicks later. But secondly, she is now seeing that as something that's part of daily life. Part of the fabric of life is to exercise and it's fun and it's enjoyable and you can do it with daddy. And hopefully she will then take that on into her teenage years, into adulthood as a really positive role model. So I think just that's our role is to provide that love, support, but also it's to empower our children. Hence, maybe the leader follower thing is outdated because if we can empower our children to think for themselves, to make their own decisions, to make their own mistakes, to feel like they have accountability for those decisions, then we are surely setting them up for success in adulthood and older life and work and etc. So our job there is to empower them to do that, but be there as their support and be there to comfort them when things do go wrong, to offer advice, to offer our wisdom and our experience but to give them more freedom to think for themselves. I'm not sure about whether he's a role model for your daughter. He's become a role model for me. <laughs> I think that I'm more worried now about what my breakfast of chocolate hobnobs and really strong coffee is doing. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I really like the idea there you're talking about accountability, and that's the kind of thing that they're sort of picking up as well. And it is about not trying to hide the mistakes we make. And again, in previous episodes, we've looked at how if you create this perception that you've never done anything wrong as a parent, that you can sort of foster this fear of failure because what will I be thinking of me? Whereas 
actually, if they become accountable and responsible for what it is that they're doing, that's a much more powerful driver for them to keep moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it also means hopefully the decisions they make are in their best interests. It's their life. It's their journey. And we are there to help them along and to support them and to provide them in need. But ultimately, when we're long gone, it'll be their lives they're leading without us, you know, when they leave home and beyond. So we have to instill that accountability in them because then hopefully the decisions they make will be right for them and for what they need as they grow up. Because what's right for us won't be right for them. They're completely different people. And also they live now in a very, very different world. You know, it's only when, when was I at school? Oh, God. 30 something years ago. Anyway, we'll gloss over that. But even though it's not that long ago, and I can remember obviously being at school, except I can't because my memory is like your memory and it's terrible. But it wasn't that long ago. But actually, it really is in how things have changed, obviously, and how life changes so quickly. So, what's right for them now, they are now way more tech savvy than I will ever be because my six year old is now on a computer every single day doing her homeschooling and flitting between Teams meetings and everything else they're doing. Now, when I was age six, it was like a sci-fi, the thoughts. So what's right for them is going to be completely different to what was right and what is right for us. So we have to empower them to make the decisions that are right for them for now and their future. I completely agree. Having been at school a similar amount of time longer, maybe a shade longer. (laughs) Absolutely. the, The world is changing. But I think what's really interesting as I look back is that the framework of life actually hasn't changed an awful lot. Sure, computers weren't a thing, but I think you could get RM Nimbuses and <laughs> an old, an old Amstrad yeah, somewhere yeah. in the house, I'm sure. But it wasn't a thing. But actually how you treated other people, how you took responsibility for your actions, all of those kinds of things were. And just coming back to that idea of accountability, that accountability without consequence, though, is meaningless. Isn't it? You can't, can you have one without the other? There will always be consequence, good or bad. So whatever it is you set out to do, if you achieve it, then the consequences are great, are good, are positive. If you don't achieve it, the consequences are potentially negative. They may not be, actually. You might learn from it. So it ends up being a positive consequence anyway. So yes, there are consequences to everything you do. But again, isn't that an important life lesson? That everything you do has a consequence or an outcome or leads to something else or has an impact on somebody else or an impact on you or an impact on the world. So everything we do and say and watch and share and role model has an impact somewhere, however small. I suppose somewhere, we could probably go into the butterfly effect or something, couldn't we? I think that might be a bit too intelligent for this time in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and that ripple effect, the butterfly stuff, absolutely. You can see that because you do something now, it may feel inconsequential, but actually will have a knock-on effect either on the way you feel or what your next step can be. I mean, just looking quite prosaically at what happens now that if our students aren't able to find it within themselves to carry on studying and working, which is why we parents feel so strongly about having to be able to support them and help them. The consequence of them not being able to study is that actually they're going to hinder their next steps. And and we can see that telegraph about what that's going to do to either their self-esteem or their life chances. And so we do stay involved and we do guide and cajole in the ways that we can. But because we started, I guess, looking at those consequences of, well, you did something wrong and therefore not quite you need to be punished because I don't think the teens are at that age now where it is about that. But it's almost, I'm going to save you from yourself. And do you think that there's a role to, as part of looking at the goals, these small achievements that can be celebrated, that actually 
But it's also important for us to look at well, what happens if you don't and to either set those boundaries of acceptable behavior and unacceptable behavior, but also the life cause and effect of if you don't get to that big purpose or that goal, how will you feel then? So I think on the boundaries point, yes, absolutely. Every unit needs boundaries because every family, every unit, every workplace, every team should have a set of values that they all believe in. They all come together and say, this is what we stand for. So as a family, we stand for this. This is our values, these are our morals, our ethics, our belief system, whatever you want to call it. But we all buy into this. So again, you could, taking more of a corporate stance, you could, as a family, say, okay, before we start on this journey of setting goals and understanding our motivations and consequences of this and that and the other, is what do we stand for as a family? What are our values as a family? What do we want other people to think of us? What are our boundaries? What do we all think is acceptable and not acceptable behavior? Because again, this is where the conversation has to be two-way. Back to the leader-follower example is we can't, shouldn't say to our children, these are the boundaries of this family. This is unacceptable behavior. This is acceptable. So there we are. Take it. We have to say, what do you think are also the relevant behaviors of this family? For us as parents too. So what do you think mum and dad should be doing? What's unacceptable? What's acceptable? And as a family, you can draw that up together. And it's, it sounds a bit, I don't mean sitting around a boardroom as a family. It's not quite that. I don't mean it to be like that. There's, there are ways of doing it that feel a bit more informal, a bit more natural. But ultimately, it's getting everyone on the same page and saying, what do we all believe is the right way to behave as a family unit between ourselves? You need that foundation agreed, almost signed, because then when things do happen, either way, when a parent behaves unacceptably, which of course we do, because we're also humans, we also don't do things as we're supposed to do, is that we can be held accountable for our actions and say, actually, you know what, that's not, not allowed, but that's not what we stand for in this family. That's not the kind of behavior we expect from you, mum. And similarly, that's not the kind of behavior I expect from my son or daughter. So I think you have to set the foundations first of what you all buy into. And then when something does happen, you have something to fall back on and refer back to, which makes it, again, more tangible. Everything's about being tangible and having something to, to show for it rather than sort of just this conversation that goes nowhere. Mm. And also this sort of, I guess, tacit agreement as well, presumably is different, the nature of that conversation with your six-year-old than it would be with my 15-year-old or my unexpectedly still-at-home 20-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about what's acceptable and what's not because I keep coming back to it actually they grow up almost by surprise I've I've found with Jake that got to a point where oh all of a sudden it doesn't feel it doesn't feel right that I appreciate you've got a point of view and while I unapologetically will still come down to but it's my house (laughs) there is still that point where actually okay no I accept that you've got thoughts and feelings and that you've got a very valid call for having an input. Yeah, absolutely. And yes, of course, it's different for a six-year-old and for a 20-year-old. But I just also want to make the point that I know the way I'm explaining this sounds like it's all very formulaic and you can sit down and have these very structured meetings and everyone says, yes, I agree with that. That's a great value to have. It's not that easy. And families are families and humans are humans. We all have emotions and different dynamics and off days and on days. And so... It is an ideal situation to have something we all buy into and it should be a vision of having that should be there. But just please don't put pressure on yourselves to have this sort of almighty document, Magna Carta-esque, that is all you know on the wall for everyone to see and everyone sticks to it and it's all great because that's obviously not going to happen. But it's just having the intention and having the intention where everybody can input into that discussion. I think that's the main point is allow everybody in the family to try and craft this together and have a have a say and input into it. At least start there. It doesn't have to be this great big 
you know, annual planning session, <laughs> like you'd have in a big blue chip corporate. That's the key difference, isn't it? That actually for many parents out there, they'll have had working relationships that haven't been great and they'll have been dealt with in one way and they'll come home and they'll have an incident with a child that doesn't even doesn't even register if it were in a work environment. But actually the reaction is different. And that's because we are parents. We are emotionally involved and invested in, in what's happening with our children. And as you say, it really is important that parents don't beat themselves up over, oh, I, I didn't do this right, or I'm struggling sometimes, because actually the vast majority of honest people are are really struggling, aren't they? Yeah. You know, I'm a great coach for working parents with adults. I do not apply those principles in any way in the same volume I should do with my own children because it's a completely different situation. And as you say, I'm emotionally invested in my children. I'm extremely subjective. They can press my buttons like no one else can, obviously. So, yes, it's all very well having tools and techniques and coaching principles which work with my clients, but it's very, very difficult to apply that to your children. So, as I say, it's about having the intention to do it, trying to make it happen, trying to be open and honest with everybody, trying to communicate as much as possible with everybody in the family, be empathetic, be honest, be transparent, but don't assume it's going to be this great, this great big formula of planning and of writing things down and, and getting things on paper in the same way that you would do in a corporate environment. Because it's, it's not the same. It's, not, it's, your, it's your home at the end of the day. And it's a very different dynamic to when you're in a workplace or with a client. I just wanted to say that I don't always do what I say I'm going to do with my own children because it's very, very difficult. <laughs> And it's the same with everyone, isn't it? Your coaching, I'm sure, will come through in the ways that you relate to them. But as parents, as I say you need to, or we need to, be much more conscious because you don't, you just don't do it when you get home. My mum's a hairdresser, and we all had middle brother had a ponytail. I mean, we had long hair. <laughs> you just don't because there is almost like a blind spot, isn't there? I think. Yes, of course there is. Of course there is. So you talked before about reflecting in relation to encouraging the children to reflect and to think about how things have been or how things should be, or how they want them to be. But presumably that's as important for the parents as well. 100%. And I think especially at the moment. So at the moment, we are obviously all in an exceptionally unprecedented, tumultuous situation, which seems never ending. And it's very, very easy to say, I am failing at work. I'm failing at home because my kids need me around to be homeschooling them. And I can't be there the whole time. I'm failing at providing them with enough hot lunches every week because I'm getting really tired. I don't know what to cook them anymore. So all these things, it's so easy, so easy to get ourselves in this sort of negative spiral of thought, but we're not actually good enough for anything at the moment. So the first point is everybody's in the same boat. We're all in this together. We're all making the best of it. None of us are trying to fail at any of these things. We're all just trying to get through. We're all trying to get through what is a pretty horrendous situation and we're all trying to get through it day by day with a smile on our face and with our children hopefully waking up the next morning fed and watered and warm and as happy as possible. So that's the first thing to say. We're all in together and we'll all get through this and it will change and it will stop and a new day will dawn and all these sort of cliche things it will happen. The second thing is to really try and practice some self-compassion. And I've really tried to do this in the last few weeks because I was feeling the same as everyone else. I was feeling very anxious that the schools are never going to go back and that... I wasn't spending enough time in my business because I'm self-employed. Um, were my kids learning enough? Was the dog being walked enough? All these sort of things, you know, everything's in your head. So you just sometimes have to say, okay, stop, take a step back and reflect. And again, that's exactly what we were saying is reflect and write things down. And what I did, which worked very well for me, I spent a couple of hours 
locked away and I did a big mind map. So I was waking up at night thinking about all these things going on in my life, work and home. So I sat down with a big piece of paper and I just scribbled. And it was a very standard mind map in a kind of again, sort of corporate sense. So you start off in the middle with me and then maybe six or seven different items I had to think about. So my business, the kids, household chore, chore anything that came into my head that had to be done. And then off those main items, all these little spider webs started appearing, all the little tasks, all the little things that were on my mind. And by the end of it, yes, it was a huge piece of paper and it was quite daunting in the amount of content on that piece of paper. But I felt so relieved, like a huge weight had been taken off my shoulders, that at least I could see it all. It wasn't all just swirling around in my head at night. I could see everything that needed to be done, everything that was going on in my life. And then what I did the next day, I looked at it and said, right, what do I actually need to do? Tick, tick, tick. So if I don't do that, then I'm not going to make any money. If I don't do this, my kids aren't going to be fed. If I don't do this, my kids are going to miss out on education. But actually doing these particular things, they'll probably have no massive impact on today, on tomorrow, next week. So let's just park them, park them, park them. So I ended up with a huge list of things that actually didn't need to be done. Maybe in a couple of weeks, in six months, when I've got a bit more headspace, that's fine. But for now, they just don't need to be done. Prioritize those that did need to be done. And start, again, as I said before about the goals, about putting some timelines against each one. So small wins. So by tomorrow, I'll reach out to this one person on LinkedIn that I've been meaning to talk to for ages. Next week, I will do X, Y, and Z. And started to chunk it up day by day, week by week into manageable tasks. And that, I'll tell you, it was quite sort of, I suppose, a revolution in my thinking because I just suddenly felt so much easier. So I thought, okay, I can breathe again. I can breathe again. So from a parent point of view, whether you're working or not, the fact you've got your child in your home that needs you as well, there'll be so much stuff in your head that is unconsciously, maybe subconsciously keeping you awake at night and causing anxiety. So just by getting it all out on paper, some time to yourself to really think about it. And as I said, journal it, write it down. It's a hugely cathartic exercise. I recommend that to anybody. And do it regularly. Do it every, you know, whenever you feel like it's all getting too much, whenever you're feeling overwhelmed about something, just sit down, write it all down. And that acts of pen to paper and pen to paper rather than keyboard to screen. <laughs> That's, again, a huge difference, actually. Sort of taking a pencil onto paper and scribbling it out rather than tapping away on a, on a keyboard makes a big difference, I personally, anyway. Routine really helps. So I think, again, from a, a parent being able to have a bit of self-compassion and a bit of self-kindness, routine, it doesn't have to be completely timetabled, although I am, I'm a bit of a nerdy spreadsheet geek, so I do like a spreadsheet, but just some basic routine. If you know when things are expected of you, you know when things should be done, you know when you would like to get things done. And again, it's time for you. It's time for when would I like to do this? When am I at my best to do this particular activity? And understanding what works for you in a day. So it could be the morning is better for you to do certain activities or tasks or whatever it is in the afternoon. So just start to loosely plan that. So you have, again, something to fall back on when you're feeling a bit overwhelmed. Just be kind to yourself, really. Say to yourself every day, it's okay. We'll all get through this. We can we can all do this. We'll get through it together. Today's another day. Some things will go really well today, and that's great. And some things won't, and that's fine too. And those things that don't go so well, we will learn from. We'll look at why they didn't go so well. And then hopefully when they happen next time, we'll be a bit more prepared for them. It was really interesting about those and just having nice, simple, easy to follow steps or techniques or processes that everyone could do and should do. And they're exactly the kind of thing that we would tell our children that they need to do. And it's interesting then that we don't naturally think of these things. And is that because we're caught up in the moment, because we're so focused on other people? And certainly, as you say, busy parents with more plates spinning than anyone would ever want, 
actually you just don't get time to sit back and have that period of sort of introspection and sort of reflection. And also I think it's guilt. I think it's a huge amount of parental guilt. Which I know I've definitely felt it over the last year, I suppose it's been now, isn't it, with all this going on. The guilt that if you actually do spend any time by yourself thinking about yourself or what you might need, you feel guilty about that time. You feel guilty thinking, oh, maybe I should be doing something else. I should be doing something for the kids or for the home or for some greater good. I shouldn't be taking the time out to think about myself because that feels like a self selfish act. And of course it's not. So I think maybe we should all banish that word, I think, actually from our vocabulary as parents is guilt because it happens to all of us all the time. All it does is hinder us and it doesn't allow us to take time out for ourselves and practice that self-compassion, which ultimately if we're happier, we feel more in control of our own thoughts. We feel like we can cope better. And of course that benefits everybody in the family. If we're feeling guilty and beating ourselves up and feeling like we're not good enough and not achieving enough in whichever aspect of life, and that's just going to project onto our kids and onto our husbands, wives, partners, you know. So I think get rid of the word guilt, top tip. <laughs> Aisha, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. That whole episode was such a timely reminder that we're all doing our best, parents and children. For many of us, spending so much time in such a confined close proximity is unusual. And let's be perfectly honest, it's not always welcomed. Aisha reminds us that it's important that we don't beat ourselves up if we don't always feel like things are going very well. And similarly, it's important to remember that our teens are going through the same kind of roller coaster of emotions and feelings too. A lot of students might understandably feel like keeping the curtains drawn and ignoring the schoolwork. And while we might not blame them, they don't necessarily have that luxury. And so finding ways of constructively assessing what's going on and what the effect of that is, and crucially, what can be done about it, is key to helping them to move forward. I'd be a massive hypocrite and incredibly pious if I were to suggest that punitive measures, like taking the PS4 away, aren't helpful. And that's not what this episode was about. But at the same time, I think we can all agree that taking a step back and looking afresh at a situation might yield a different result. And that, for me, is the real benefit of trying to take on some of the coaching techniques that we've heard about. We heard that there might not be a magic formula, But this idea of walking and talking is pretty close, I think. It's non-compative, it's non-judgmental, and these are the conversations where you can explore an issue or a situation with your teens and give them time to reflect. And that can be so helpful. These sideways conversations, as Dom Thompson called them way back in episode one, are a really effective way of grounding our teen and helping them to make sense of what's happening. And I love the idea that not being eye to eye helps to immediately diffuse any potential tensions. Although we didn't touch on it, I wonder whether the discussion is more important than us trying to solve the problems for our young people. Letting them talk it through to consider their situation and the impacts and what they might do will give them a chance to feel accountable and responsible. Now, we have talked about it before. Handing over control to our young people can feel very unnatural. We're used to doing everything and we want to help them. So it can be counterintuitive to let them work through issues. 
But in the long run, that's what they need to be able to do. There's always a danger when talking about coaching, that the advice can feel a bit twee. But what we heard from Aisha are simple, practical ideas around how we can help our teams by encouraging reflection, by being empathetic, and also by actively listening. Of course, the fact that they're not rocket science doesn't mean that they'll always be easy to adopt, but this is surely the best path to help them with their motivation now, and also to help them to prepare for dealing for whatever setbacks they'll inevitably face in the future. Of course, the firmest endorsement of this approach that our children can possibly have is to see us modelling it. And we can best promote the value and the importance of self-compassion and reflection by doing it for ourselves. And let's face it, that's the advice we would give our friends, so why not practice what we preach? Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode as interesting and useful as I have. If you did, would you take a moment to leave a five-star rating and perhaps a review too? It really helps us to reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, sharing the link to this and other episodes with your friends on social media is always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.